Well, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to start today with a little story. Uh, we went to Alaska with our family and uh, took our 84-year-old father-in-law, 82-year-old father-in-law along. And we went to the Kenai Peninsula where um, our daughter-in-law grew up. And there's this uh, peninsula, I guess it's about, the, the Cook Inlet's about 40 miles wide or something like that. And just on the other side of the inlet is the Aleutian mountain chain, which is a big string of volcanoes, some of them quite tall. It's just really spectacular rise. Uh, most of the time you can't see them, but the day we got there, they were actually quite visible, and it was uh, a lot of ooing and aahing. So we got to our a place we were going to stay there and decided we would go down to a little lookout. We took our father-in-law with us, and we got out. And by this time, it had gotten to be kind of hazy, so you could still see the outline of the volcanoes fine, but it was it was a bit hazy, and so we were all kind of talking about how amazing it was. And our father-in-law was looking and looking and finally said, What the bleep we looking at? Old military man. And uh, that's the way a lot of times I think Hebrews is. Uh, we stood and explained to him, you know, see the peak there? And then finally, oh yeah, I see it. And you've been in that situation before where uh, someone's trying to show you something or trying to explain something to you. You just can't quite get it to focus. And then all of a sudden it comes into focus. And I, and I feel like that's kind of the way Hebrews is. Once you get it, you can see the whole thing. And until you do, it's just a little bit fuzzy. Well, I, th- I think we're down to the point where I can give you a, a proposed outline of the book that if you've been having trouble focusing, maybe this will help. And then what I want to do is go into... Uh, some questions about this uh, passage, this chapter 10 passage that I've gotten from uh, through the week, both from people that come to the class and some other people as well. I really appreciate your questions. It really helps me um, dig in and, and meet, meet, meet needs here, but also uh, learn myself. So I encourage that. So Hebrews... I'm going to propose a structure that kind of makes it come together. Uh, We kind of started this last uh, week. And it's six betters, a word, and a response to the word. Six betters, a word, and a response to the word. Last week, we went over three of the betters. Anybody remember what they were? Better covenant, better priest, better sacrifice. Okay, so we got a better priest with a better sacrifice under a better covenant. Because we, we, the whole point of this book, remember, is I want to move you on to maturity. You've gotten hard of hearing. Uh, you, you're, you lost your possessions and were glad. That's great. You uh, ministered to me in my chains. That's great. You love the brethren. That's great. Um, but you've gotten hard of hearing. And you're starting to uh, neglect the salvation that Jesus has provided. And that salvation in the book of Hebrews is this holistic view of salvation that goes from rebirth all the way to a restored creation. And the way you move on to maturity is understand 
this man who's God, this God who's man. And this God who's man has two functions, as Melchizedek did. He's a higher order of priest, and he's king of righteousness. That's what his name means. And we started Hebrews, remember, with Jesus as this elevated position of what? You remember what the elevated position is? Today you are a son, and I've begotten you. And we talked about how son is this elevated position of rule of authority. So the other three betters I'm going to propose is a better son or a better king under a better administration with a better world. And I think that's basically Hebrews. So a better priest with a better sacrifice under a better covenant. A better king with a better administration with a better world. What does that have to do with us? Well... We have a word, and the word, if it's mixed with faith, actually places us into the experience of all six of those betters. So last week we looked at Hebrews 10. Let's just look at it again. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness... To enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, who who gets to enter the Holy of Holies under the Old Covenant? High priest. How often does a high priest get to go in? Once a year. But now, here we are going in ourselves. By a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So you've got this better high priest who made the better sacrifice of Himself... And because of that sacrifice, we can go into that Holy of Holies when? Anytime. Because Jesus is a priest perpetually. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Where, what is better about the new covenant? What's the, main, what's the main distinguishing point of the new covenant, the better covenant? Remember? He wrote it on our hearts. Okay, So we have this better sacrifice Jesus, this better priest who's continually serving, not in the tabernacle made with hands, but with the tabernacle in heaven. And we can go there any time to have our hearts sprinkled and cleansed. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And the purpose of the cleansed heart is so that we can have our hearts prepared to do service to God. Now consider, if we are going into the Holy of Holies, what does that make us? A high priest. We are now participating, not as the high priest, but in the high priestly function. And the result is our own hearts are sprinkled and cleansed. Now just think about it for a minute. What is a priest? We had another word that that, uh, described it in Hebrews. Anybody remember that word? He is the blank of a new covenant. What? Mediator. A priest is a mediator. A priest stands between two entities. 
a priest stands on behalf of. You might recall the nation Israel was called to have a priestly function. Who was who the nation of Israel supposed to mediate for? The world. All the other nations. God put Israel uh, basically at the cross of Main Street and the interstate. The two major silk route trade routes went right through Israel. As a matter of fact, the most fought over ground in all of the world, ancient world, was Megiddo. We know it as Armageddon. And Megiddo was like the perfect toll booth. Everybody wanted to own the toll booth of the two highways. They come right through there. They're close together. Because that's, that was where the traffic was. And God put that nation there so that everybody could come by and see this is what you should live like. It's the priestly function. And when we go in to the Holy of Holies in heaven to have our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the water of righteousness so that we are now prepared to do good works, what priestly function are we going to serve? Who, who are we going to be serving as a priest to? The world. If you'll abide in me, you'll, do, you'll produce fruit, and the world will see that and say, well, that's God. That'll glorify me. Glorify. Glorify means someone sees the essence of something else. Well, when we serve this function of, of serving with a, cl- a clean heart, people are seeing God. And we're, and we're doing a priestly function. So we've got this Melchizedek high priest, a better priest with a better sacrifice under a better covenant... And we can participate in that when we have our hearts with this law written on it, cleansed so that we can have it live from the inside out. By entering this Holy of Holies, and then we go serve one another and serve others, and we're doing a priestly function. This is maturity. Remember in verse 5, he said, I don't want to talk about baptism and... Repentance from dead works and eternal judgment and stuff like that. Although he does talk about those things. But he talks about those things not in the sense of we're just trying to escape from it. He talks about these things in this transcendent life that he wants us to live. Under this high priest and king, Melchizedek. Jesus. And he's a better king with a better administration... And he wants a better world. Now, we covered this some in the first part of the book. And we're about to revisit in a real major way. A better king with a better administration with a better world. Let's just go back to chapter 2 real quick. And just review. It's been a while since we went through this. Chapter 2, verse uh, 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, 
But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. This is Psalm 8. So you've got the angels that are higher than us. So who would you expect God to put in charge? The angels. That would make the most sense, wouldn't it? But now he's put us in charge. That's what he designed us for, is to rule the world. And, and the tone of Psalm 8 is, it's unbelievable what you're doing. It's incredible. You, you made this amazing world and then you put these babies over it, these infants, these newcomers. It's incredible what you've done. But then in perhaps the greatest understatement in all the Scripture, he says, um, For in that he put all, all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Right, that's a dramatic understatement, wouldn't you say? The world is not working the way it's supposed to work. Do you see mankind working in perfect harmony to bring peace and prosperity to all? Do you see mankind working together in perfect submission to God to bless one another and to create complete harmony with all creation? That's not really what we see. We see strife. We see wanton shooting of missiles. We see genocide. It's not the way the world is supposed to be. But here's what we do see. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. He became a man. For the suffering of death, which is the better sacrifice. Crowned with glory and honor. He has been elevated to that spot. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And then Hebrews goes on to make this amazing invitation that he wants us to ascend to that same place with him. Verse 10, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. He's already gone to glory. What glory are we talking about? Reigning over the earth. And he wants to have many sons to do it with him. To make the captain of their salvation perfect. This is this teleosai. Teleos... I cannot pronounce that. That Greek where you got three vowels in a row. It just, just gets me. He, he wants to bring us all with him. I will declare your name to my brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, fellow partakers, teammates. He wants us to be teammates with him in his administration. But that is something we can throw away. It's a reward to be an inheritor. What we're about to get to is don't be like an evil person like Esau was who sold his inheritance for a bowl of stew. Don't let your appetites throw aside participating in this better administration in a better world. Now, let's talk about better king, better administration, better world. T 
today, if we enter this Holy of Holies, have our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience to do good works, are we going to wake the world a better place? We are. We're going to make our family a better place. We're going to make our workplace a better place because we're doing life the way God's asked us to do it. Through the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, is going to be actually happening for us because we're following Jesus. And we are not only preparing to be part of this administration when all of these functions, all of these betters become experientially fulfilled in totality, but we're going to actually become His administration in the kingdom of this world, I'm sorry, in His kingdom, which is not yet of this world. In the new earth, the culmination of really what we know of as human history is when heaven comes to earth. We do go to heaven for a little time, but we come back to this earth, a new earth. And heaven comes to earth and God comes and dwells on the earth. Uh, To me, that's the happiest thought I can think of. And the question is, what are we going to be prepared to do? But that's not the only question. The question is also, what are we doing now? So we have a better priest with a better sacrifice under a better covenant, one that's written in our hearts. He wants us to go into that Holy of Holies continuously and be cleansed. Why? So we can do good works and love one another. And when we do that, we're actually walking where the captain of our salvation has already walked. And we are becoming a king in this life, a king by serving. He showed this to his disciples. His disciples had one overriding consideration. What was it? Number one. Now, who's number one? Who's going to sit at your right hand? They even got their mother to come and lobby for them. My mom has something to ask you, Jesus. And what was the reaction of the other disciples when they saw their mother come and ask? I wish I would have thought. I didn't think about that. They were ticked, but it's probably because they didn't think of it. And I can just—I just gotta believe that Jesus was rolling his eyes the whole time. Really, that's what you really care about. But you know what? He never told them to stop seeking greatness. Never. What did he tell them? You call me teacher, and that's appropriate. Okay, And what I'm going to do is wash your feet. You won't understand this for a little while. I am great. And I'm showing you what, how I want you to be great. When Jesus was ready to ascend, they said, Is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I'm, they're probably thinking, Am I finally going to get my spot in the new administration in the better world? And he said, Yeah, not for mine to say. But here's what you do. You go and wait to get powerful. You think they like to hear that? That's what they wanted, was power. They got a different kind than they were expecting. But they got it. And what they do with it? They changed the world. The world is a different place today because those guys went out to the whole earth. And they did the job that Jesus gave them to do in a better kings with a better administration and they made a better world. That's what he wants us to do. This is Hebrews. How does he want us to do that? 
What's the agency for this to happen? Well, the agency is the Word mixed with faith. I looked it up here, and I'm sure this is uh, ballpark numbers. I looked up word, words, speaks, and oath when it's in the context of God speaking in Hebrews. It's only 13 chapters in Hebrews. 21 instances. 21 instances God is speaking. I looked at, kind of went through and counted roughly how many quotes from the Old Testament there are. Something on the order of magnitude of 40 different quotes from the Old Testament. God is speaking. Uh, we're, going, we're going to see here just shortly, he's going to say this. When God spoke in times past, a mountain rumbled. And people said, stop! Don't, don't talk to us anymore. We're, we're afraid we're going to die. The next time he speaks, the whole universe is going to blow up. Is that who you want to ignore, really? We saw it in chapter 3 and 4. The people who died in the wilderness. Why did they die in the wilderness? Was it because they didn't know? It was because they heard and they didn't mix it with faith, so it didn't do them any good. He actually called it the gospel, didn't he? <clears throat> the word faith or believe shows up 35 times in Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. It's, it's over and over again. So what we have, I think, you know... Uh, uh, legitimately, and I'm sure there's many other ways you could structure this book. It's you know written by an infinite person, so there's probably a whole lot more here than what I'm saying. But if you think of an of a, a cord, a rope with eight strands, and you got six betters, the word and faith on our part, you have a pretty good idea how this book works. Uh, last week I was talking to Cindy, and she said, just kind of says the same thing over and over again, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, actually, that's a good way to look at it. It says the same thing over and over again. Why do you think he says the same thing over and over again? It's pretty important. We're hard of hearing. That's the problem. At least that's my problem. I need a lot of repetition. Have you found in your child-rearing experience that once is enough to tell your kids something? It's like, oh, oh yeah, I remember that. You have to repeat a lot, don't you? Well, he's trying to get us to grow up here. And he's repeating the same thing over and over. Better priest, better sacrifice, better covenant, one written on your heart. A better, better tabernacle for all of that. And one that's in heaven. I want you to go there all the time. Better king with a better administration under a, to make a better world. This is your inheritance. This is what you were made to be. This is how you can be completely fulfilled as a person. Don't throw it away. And by the way, as you do it in this life, you're changing the world now. And you do it by listening to the Word of God, mixing it with faith, which means you do what God wants you to do. It's an incredibly powerful book, and I think hopefully it's coming into focus. So now let's just look at some tricky things here in uh, chapter 10. 
they're tricky because of our cultural background, I think, because most of us who grow up in church didn't, didn't really grow up with this better sacrifice, better covenant written on your heart, better kingdom, better administration, better world type of a thing. We, we mostly grew up with, you are a pepperoni that God wants to put on a pizza and put in the oven and fry. And the whole goal of life is to get taken off the pizza so you don't get thrown in the oven. And so we kind of get made like everything is about getting off the pizza. So uh, we come to this verse, um, chapter uh, 10, verse, uh, oh, chapter 10, yeah. I'm looking at chapter 2 going, what in the world, where would my stuff go? Better pizza. (laughs) So we have um, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how... Much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Surely that's not talking about us is our first and natural uh, uh, reaction to that. But let's just look over to the flow of where we're headed. Look at chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. This is Jesus he's talking about. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. So God wants us to grow up as sons, right? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son He receives. Now in this world of indulgent parenting, parent-centric families and child-centric families. Uh, We've kind of lost this concept. For some reason, one day I read a Dear Abby. I probably hadn't read 10 in 10 years, but I read this one. And this girl was writing in, teenage girl, and she said, I know I'm too young to be a mother, but, uh, you know, I have a boyfriend, and I thought I was pregnant. I know I shouldn't be pregnant, but then I found out I wasn't. I was really disappointed. Is it wrong for me to really want to be pregnant? Because I want—I need somebody to need me. I need somebody to love me. How about that for motherhood? I'm going to have a child, so someone needs me. Can you raise a child to be long-term dependent and needy? That's actually not that hard to do, is it? Okay, 
And will that child, if you raise a child for the purpose of that child loving you, will they? No. What you're teaching them is to make life all about you. And they will. Is that parent going to discipline their children? Never. What does discipline risk if you're a parent? Yeah, rejection, right? I hate you, slam the door. I can't let that happen, right? I just can't risk it because I'm having this child to give me affirmation. Have you ever been mad at God? Have you ever slammed the door at God and said, I hate you? Maybe I should ask, how many times have you slammed the door at God and said, I hate you? You think that he wrings his hand over that? Do you think they all get together and say, oh my gosh, John says he hates us. What are we going to do? Let's, we, we can't have this happen. We need him to need us. We need him to love us. No, no. Because he's a perfect dad. Verse 7 here, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? It's a different world that he's writing into here. The Jewish world, this is not a problem. What did Abby say? Yeah, what did Abby say? <laughs> Abby said, you're too young. Wait till you're older. She did not say, spank that. If you have a kid, spank that kid. Don't make life about you. You've got to scourge a kid if you're going to... She, no, she didn't say that. But if you're without chastening, which all have become partakers. Okay, you've all been chastened. If, if it were the fact that you hadn't been chastened, you would be a bastard. You wouldn't be a real son. You'd be illegitimate. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and paid them respect... Now, this is, again, riding into a Jewish culture where they still have fathers. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? See, he has our best interest at heart. Let's go back to chapter 10. Remember, last week I showed you Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is where we saw, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That song was conducted, composed, not conducted, composed by Moses to remind the children of Israel that when you reject me, God speaking, when you reject me and go serve other idols, I'm going to let the adversaries devour you. They're going to eat you up. Because... I'm going to create consequences for you. But when I see you have no no strength left, I'm going to rescue you. That's the the Lord will judge his people part. Why? Why am I going to rescue you? Because I have better things concerned. I'm I'm going to send you to I'm going to send you into exile with Babylon. Hundreds of thousands are going to die. It's going to be it's going to be excruciating to you. But I've got your best interest at heart. I never can remember that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven verse. Anybody got that? Got that memorized? Yeah, I know our plans I have for you. Not for evil, but for good. You can't remember it either. Okay. Yeah, I've got your best interest at heart here, and we would say just like your child would when they get worn out. I don't. 
I will take a different path. I don't like that best interest. We had our four-year-old grandson over the other night. And I got home, and, and everybody else had gotten down from dinner, and he was still sitting there staring at his chicken soup. Okay, we're not talking about like broccoli or, or uh, Brussels sprouts here. It was chicken soup. And um, I said, hey, how's it going? Kiss Terry. And she said, uh, well, Brady told me that if I gave him another roll, he would eat his soup. I said, oh, that probably wasn't a good idea, but now we have to have a standoff. So he's got to eat his soup, he promised. So I sat with him for an hour and 15 minutes. And I, I kind of played games and stuff. And he tried everything under the book. I'm pretty experienced at this, though, so... Um, None of it worked, trying to figure out how he could get down without having to eat his turkey soup. Now, he actually did get down a couple of times. I gave him a little swat. But apparently, not, I'm, my swatting's not all that motivational because about 15 minutes before they got home, uh, Mimi says, you know, when you, get, when you get here, your dad might give you a spanking too. And he said, owie, 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 and picked up his spoon and started shoveling that chicken soup. So he got to play for about five minutes, and then his parents got home. So we were telling Lee about that, and he said, oh, well, I probably can tell you where that came from. In their family, lying is like the thing you do not do. If you, if you get caught lying, you're going to get busted bad. Most other things, it's just like, you know, let's just make it right. He, he has kind of a restorative justice kind of a household, unless you lie. And then it's dire. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's dire. So he caught, uh, he caught, he caught the four-year-old lying. And he said, he said he, this was at the, their grandparents' house, other grandparents' house. So he went and got a wooden spoon, and he whacked him. And uh, he put his foot up to protect himself. So he whacked the bottom of his foot, and now he's got one foot. Ah! So he put his hand back there, and he whacked his hand. So now he's, ah! He's got one hand, one foot. And so he said, that's probably what he had in mind when he said, owie, owie, owie. Well, why does Lee do that? He wants him to be truthful. Now, there's really nothing you can do for a child that's more helpful to them than help them learn to be truthful. Look, most of the damage we do to ourselves is because we deceive ourselves, isn't it? We tell ourselves that this is okay for us because we exercise self-rationalization. If you can teach a child to be truthful, you're really doing them incredible good. And you might, you might treat them this way, and they might still be liars. Matter of fact, they will still be liars. They're human, right? So, this is, this is the picture, I think, that we have of God. Now, if you were to ask Brady at that point in time, is this the way you would like your dad to treat you? What do, what do you think he'd say? Of course not. I, I can tell you firsthand. He tried everything he could think of to get me to let him get down and get, get away with eating two rolls and no chicken soup. He, he uh, well, we don't need to go into that. It's all the things that you and I do to God is what he did. Well, that's it here. 
Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Which law is that? The old one or the better one? It's the old one, one, the one written on tablets, not the one written on our hearts. So if the one written on tablets, if you disobey something in that law, is there a consequence to it? Yeah, and does God always make sure the consequence happens? Yeah, yeah, okay. So now, if it's written on your heart, does the standard go up or down? It goes up, right? So that's the point. How much more? Now, so what is this about how much worse punishment? Well, let's first look at no longer remains a sacrifice. I had a good question about this last week. I did a little more digging, and right under my nose, I didn't even see it before. Look at verse 18. Now, where there's a remission of sins, there's no longer an offering for sin. It's the same phrase. Well, what's the context there? Look at verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts. In their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Why will they be remembered no more? It's one time. It's all taken care of, right? Now where there's a remission of these, what's he talking about? These. The sins. There's no longer an offering for sin. Here we are in the Old Testament. We're doing offerings, offerings, offerings. What are we doing? We're looking forward to the time when that's not necessary anymore. Now, It still has a a valid function. We saw that a little earlier. It gives us a reminder of sins. And that's still valid. But it doesn't give us any remission of sins. It's not passing over until it's taken care of. It's taken care of. For if we sin willfully after we have no knowledge of truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Okay? Is the temple sacrifice going to do any good if we're sinning willfully? It's not going to do anything. Jesus already paid for that. Is Jesus going to come die again? No, why? He just accomplished it one time. The sin's paid for. The only question is, what's the consequence going to be? And here's the picture. You've got the Holy of Holies available to you at all times. And instead of going in there, what do you do? And no thanks. I've got this one. Had another good question. What does it mean to sin willfully? Is there any other kind? Good question, huh? Well, I think this word uh, has a different connotation. Let's look at 1 Peter 5 2. I don't think this word means uh, like. Involuntary, you know, voluntary, or like a, it's a voluntary reaction rather than an involuntary. First Peter, chapter five. What did I say? Five what? Two. Thank you. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Same word, willingly. Okay? 
not by compulsion, but willingly. So what, see, uh, Ken, you, you became an elder. So um, when you became an elder, did someone like blackmail you into it? Are you an elder here at this church because you were blackmailed? No. no. Okay. That's, we got a good start in this interview. Okay. Were you uh, guilted into it? Maybe. No. <laughs> okay. Okay, no. You weren't guilted into it. Why did you do it? He's having a hard it's time thinking. It, it's a good opportunity to serve. Yeah, you wanted to, right? Because you wanted to. So he's saying, don't be an elder because somebody guilt you into it. Or you feel compelled to do it. Do it because you want to. Embrace it with gusto to be an elder, to shepherd the flock. It's hard to serve people that aren't appreciative. And that's difficult. But embrace it. Do it gladly. Okay, you get the, you get the idea? So here's, it's not like, so if we go on, sin, let's, let's go back to Hebrews. This is not like if we sin and, you ha, and, your, and your volition was involved somehow. It's if you sin gladly because you want to. It's, it's not that, ah, man, I, I lost my temper again, so I'm going to go to the Holy of Holies. Look, it wouldn't even make any sense. Go to the Holy of Holies to have your conscience cleansed from evil works. What does that imply? Yeah, yeah, you've got evil in your conscience, right? And you know it. So what are you doing? You're saying, I don't want this here. I, I, want, I want to be cleansed. So you're contesting, you're fighting. You're, you're, you're trying to grow. You see, you get the point? But if you go on sinning and you say, eh, I want to sin. This is my life. I'm, ju- I, I, I'm just going to go this way. It's okay. Like the uh, guy in 1 Corinthians, right? He had his, what was it, his uh, father's wife. And he's like, look at me. I got my father's wife. Isn't this cool? You got to put that guy out. He's not even trying. He's doing it willfully, gladly. He's, he's leaning into it. You should get the point? Well, if you do that, then what are you doing with Jesus? You're trampling Him underfoot. He died with a better sacrifice for me. And I'm saying, hey, thanks for that uh, death there, Jesus. Um, I may need it someday, but right now i got this. And... Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that you care, but right now I'm, I'm just going to do my own thing. Wait, says you're trampling it underfoot. Counting it a common thing, okay? What does it mean to count something a common thing? If it's common, what? You, if you've got stuff in your house, you got, let's say the two-year-old class is coming over to your house. What are you going to leave out? The common stuff, right? The stuff you don't put a lot of value on. If anything has a lot of value, you're going to put it up. And you're saying to this this high priest who has a better sacrifice and a better covenant and a better king and a better inheritance with a better world, you're saying, ah, oh, nah, you know, I, I'd rather have a bowl of soup right now.